1: on the 28th of August, 1944, an American Sherman tank sat on a hillside watching the approaching train in the valley below. Sitting on top was a sergeant, Lafayette G. Paul. There was nothing normal about this soldier, however. He was the US Army's most feared tank commander, and by the end of his service, he had clocked over a dozen enemy tank kills. Order up. Paul instructed his men over the intercom.
2: Lafayette, also known as War Daddy, was an incredible individual. He was completely driven, and despite being claustrophobic, he volunteered to become a tank operator. Suddenly, Paul's tank,
1: called In the Mood, fired its 76mm M1 cannon. The armored piercing round sighed through the air. A second later, an enormous explosion. The German train's boiler tank had been hit, bringing the locomotive to a dramatic halt. Being transported were five deadly Tiger tanks, and within moments, their barrels started to rotate as they hunted for a target.
2: Hey boy, aim for those
1: panzers. Crowd war, daddy.
3: Tank warfare is a brutal business, and to survive, you needed to have nerves of steel. I would not want to be a tanker in World War II. Tanks from this period were just a steel box filled with gasoline. They offered very little protection.
1: It was usually the person who fired first would be the one that survived. The war film Fury is a movie like no other. Directed by David Ayer, it follows the exploits of a tank commander called Don War Daddy Collier played by Brad Pitt. Many fans don't realize that the nickname of Pitt's character was actually borrowed from a real person, and that man would almost single-handedly drive the 3rd Armoured Division straight into the guts of Nazi Germany. This is the true story of War Daddy, the real Fury. Bruce Crompton, history lover, military antique collector and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to support these important institutions honor the heroes that sacrifice so much and help preserve their legacies for future generations. I've always loved tanks, and as you may know, I've owned and restored many in my time. Most recently, a German Panther, which now sits in an Australian museum. So I suppose some people call me a tank expert, which is the reason why one day I got a call from a Hollywood director called David Eyre. David was making a movie called Fury, all about a tank crew in the Second World War. It's an amazing film, and if you want to see what life was like for a World War II tanker, do take the time to watch it. Anyway, The production needed lots of real period tanks and military vehicles, and David wondered if I could help him source them. The producers had already managed to find working Shermans. Unsurprising to me, as there were over 50,000 of them produced in the Second World War. But finding moving German tanks was another thing altogether. As the Second World War progressed, Germany became an increasingly beleaguered nation. Maintaining its tank production was extremely difficult, especially as the Allies stepped up their aerial bombardment on the factories. So not many panzers, in comparison, were produced. When you consider the majority of those that left the factory were destroyed in battle, you can understand why so little remained in existence today. Despite these odds, I knew just where to look to find some working examples. My own collection. I was able to find the production a Panther, Panzer IV, and a Hetzer tank, as well as a number of other small vehicles. The other German tank in the film, a Tiger, is as rare as hen's teeth, as only one working model is known to exist. Luckily for David, It's owned by one of my favorite places. The Tank Museum in Bovington is perhaps the greatest museum of its type in the world. It houses every conceivable tank from World War I straight through to modern day chieftains and challengers. However, the jewel in their crown is the incredible collection of Second World War tanks, two of which featured in the film. The star tank called Fury in the movie was the museum's Type M4A2E8 tank. It's known by aficionados as an Easy 8 because of its unique suspension, but to everyone else, it looks like a standard Sherman. The other tank is a Panzer VI, otherwise known to the Allies as a Type One Tiger tank, and it's one of the most deadly the Nazis ever produced. Both these tanks form a centerpiece attraction at the museum. In fact, you can go and book a Fury experience if you want to find out just what it was like to sit in a Sherman. It's a treat not to be missed. Alternatively, you can also take a ride in the Tiger tank if you're adventurous enough. David Willey is the curator of the Tank Museum Bovington and explains what it was like to fight in a tank in World War II.
0: Over the last hundred years for crews, tanks really haven't changed that much. Being cooped up in a metal box, freezing in winter, boiling hot in the summer heat, seeing little of the battlefield and being deafened by the engine and track noise. Their size, speed and firepower have of course increased over time and they're still an amazing offensive weapon. There are many ways to die in a tank, and the men who fought in them had to have incredible trust in each other and bravery to do their job. Used well and imaginatively, they can be a devastating weapon and can turn a battle on its head. Like any weapon, it's not necessarily just about the technology, the top trump statistics we fixate on. It's about the person that wields it. Sherman tanks in the Second World War became outclassed in many areas by the later German tanks as the war progressed. But if you had an adept tank commander in charge of an inferior tank, he can beat a technically superior one. Heinz Guderian, the German general and tank enthusiast said, if the tanks succeed, then victory follows.
1: Whilst the story of the film Fury is fictional, there is much truth in it. Brad Pitt plays the lead character, Don War Daddy Collier. His depiction of a grizzled soldier is reflective of real tank commanders of the time. Tough, driven men who hated the Nazis. The events he and his crew go through in the film all did mostly happen, but just to different tank teams in different periods throughout the war. The honest raw depiction of being a tanker is no coincidence. David Ayer, the director, also comes from a military background, having once served on the submarine USS Haggo, so he knows what it's like to be cooped up in a metal machine. Owen Thornton, the associate producer of Fury, worked with David to help bring the fictional Don Collier to life on the screen. He spent years researching the life of tankers during the Second World War to make sure the film was as close to the truth as possible.
3: So there are definite similarities of Brad's fictional character, Don Collier, to real-life tankers such as Lafayette Pull. Apart from sharing the same name, Brad Pitt's war daddy is not actually about Pull. Pitt's character in Fury is amalgamation of many people, and talking to... World War II veterans, especially tank guys, they all identified with Don Collier a lot. They said they knew a guy just like him. However, there are also differences too. I'm not sure that Lafayette was as rough
1: as Fitz Collier. The real war daddy was an incredible individual who won over half a dozen medals, including a distinguished service order, Silver Star, Purple Heart, Legion of Merit, Croix de Guerre and the Legion of Honour. He was a larger-than-life man who after the war was labelled an ace of aces as a tank commander. An ace was a credit normally given to fighter pilots who shot down five enemy aircraft. In just 83 days, Lafayette Paul and his team amassed 12 tanks destroyed along with over 250 armored vehicles and self-propelled guns knocked out, and over a 1,000 soldiers killed or injured. It is a tally that is unlikely to ever be matched again by a single tank commander. The end for In The Mood and its tank team, however, was devastatingly sad, with two of them maimed for life and another killed. Remember, everything you're about to hear is true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. Lafayette G. Paul grunted as he clambered aboard his Sherman M4A1 76 tank, his shin catching on the hard metal. He rubbed it vigorously and cussed. He was a tall man at six foot two inches, seemingly unsuited to being a tank commander. And his size meant he often caught his body on the innumerable edges and metal protrusions of the Sherman. Perhaps even more extraordinarily for a tanker was the fact he was claustrophobic, which meant he hated confined spaces. To
3: be a tanker, I mean, it's a very hard job. You're in a very small space. There isn't a lot of room. Uh, Think of it like in an old fashioned Mini Cooper, you know? There's not a lot of comforts. You just move your arms a couple of inches each way. You've either got a gun in front of you or you've got driving sticks in front of you or you've got a breach of a gun. It's It's a very tight space. If you're anyway claustrophobic, tanking isn't for you. Tanks are unforgiving. There's hatches in tanks. You've gotta slide in, you've gotta slither into your seat. It's hard, if you miss, if you miss by an inch, you're gonna either bust your lip, you're gonna bust your head, you're gonna knock a tooth out. You know, it's very, very tight in there.
1: So despite, in theory at least, being completely physically unsuitable for life as a tanker, Paul found himself sitting on top of a Sherman, deep in enemy territory. Like the rest of the third herd, he and his crew were having their first taste of combat, having only left England a couple of months earlier, and they were all experiencing a baptism of fire. They had lost their first tank and crew member to a handheld anti-tank weapon called a Panzerfaust, just five days after they landed on Omaha Beach on the 29th of June. Now issued with a replacement Sherman, with a more powerful cannon, they were on the move again. It was the end of August, and they were hunting down a quickly retreating enemy. Fire it up, baby! Paul shouted through the hatch to the driver below. The engine roared into life, and they set off down the road. An entire convoy of tanks and vehicles stretched out behind them. War Daddy! as Lafayette Paul's crew called him, had already earned a reputation. Always volunteering to lead a column so he could be the first into action, he loved destroying tanks and killing the enemy. It was said the men of the division were more scared of him than of the Germans. The men of the 3rd platoon, item company, 32nd Armoured Division, were tough blue-collar guys all of whom had bonded during their training at Camp Beauregard in Louisiana. Part of the 3rd Armored Division, nicknamed the Third Herd, they landed in Normandy, France on the 24th of June, 1944, after being deployed to Britain the year before. Dr. Chris Mann is the head of the Department of War Studies at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and explained why the Third Herd was such a vital part of the Allied invasion force.
4: The United States Army's Third Armoured Division established a reputation of one of the best US formations of the Second World War. Arriving in Normandy in late June 1944, it spearheaded the US First Army's operations during that particularly hard-fought part of the Northwest European campaign. The terrain in Normandy, the Bocage, with its high, thick hedgerows and substantial stone farm buildings was not conducive to tank warfare. The American tanks were particularly vulnerable to German handheld anti-tank weaponry, such as the Panzerfaust and Panzerschreck, which were used by skillful defenders who used the terrain to get in close and target the vehicle's vulnerable sides and rear. The German willingness to fight for every inch of territory meant that progress was slow and casualties were high. The division and men, such as Lafayette paul fought its way towards Germany. Its outstanding performance in Normandy and in the last months of the war made a decisive contribution to the Western Allies' victory in Europe.
1: It was humid and a bead of sweat ran off Lafayette's nose and evaporated on the side of the hot hull as the tank trundled along. Written on its side in white letters were the words, in the mood. Not only a nod to the great Glenn Miller's morale-boosting piece of music, but also because when Paul originally painted it on the side of the tank, he was in the mood for fighting, for killing Germans. War Daddy was a tough-as-nails Texan who broke the mould of traditional tankers. At first glance, you could tell he was different. Wearing cowboy boots instead of regulation army issue footwear, it indicated he was a man who didn't mind breaking the rules. To a close observer, however, his body also gave more clues to his hard character, forged from life on a working farm. At age nine, he lost half his right index finger down to the knuckle whilst clearing a lawnmower. He also sported a broken nose, testament to being more than useful with his fists. He was a keen amateur boxer and had even once had a bout with world champion Joe the Brown Bomber Louie in a three-round army exhibition match. He lost, although commendably he wasn't knocked out, despite the large weight difference. Inside the claustrophobic hull of In the Mood sat a motley crew that Paul had personally handpicked. He fondly referred to them as his pups. It was usual for US soldiers to have nicknames, and just as the men had chosen his War Daddy devised theirs. Corporal Wilbur "Baby" Richards was the driver. Standing at just under five foot four inches tall, Richards earned his nickname at a diner whilst eating with the crew. A waitress came up to take their order and looking at Wilbur's youthful complexion stated,
0: I didn't know they were letting babies into the army.
1: From that moment on, the name stuck. Private First Class Bertram Close was the bespectacled co-driver and bow machine gunner. At only 17 years old and still with peach fuzz on his gentle face, he obviously became known as Schoolboy. He had replaced In The Mood's original co-driver, Private Arthur Reed, who had been killed when the crew's first tank, also called In The Mood, had been knocked out. The tank's gunner was Corporal Willis Groundhog Oller, Paul often used to brag that Ola could shoot the eyebrows off of a nap at 1,500 yards with his 76 mm gun. Oller had earned his nickname after desert training in California. The imprint that the tanker's goggles had left on his face after days of hard driving had deeply amused Paul, who thought he looked like a groundhog. Finally, the loader was Delbert Boggs, who had apparently escaped a prison sentence when the courts had given him a choice of doing time or serving in the military. Predictably, he became known as Jailbird. The five foot six inch Boggs had a brother called Charlie, who also served in item company. They had both signed up together Tragically, just a few weeks after landing in Normandy, his brother in a tank directly ahead of In The Mood was killed instantly when his Sherman was destroyed from a direct hit by a panzer. Davy Smith was a tanker in the US Marines and knows just what it's like to operate in a tightly knit
2: crew. Teamwork is what it's all about when it comes to operating a tank. When new recruits passed through tank school, each of them used to be handed a biography on War Daddy so students can learn about what made him such a legendary tanker. Apart from his aggressive nature in combat, what he was especially skillful at was building and managing his crew. Cole physically towered over his men. He was a half a foot taller than the rest of them. And as a result, he became a father figure to them. His crew trusted his judgment implicitly but most importantly, his calm nature under fire helped them deal with the emotion of war.
1: Lafayette became known as a fearless and selfless soldier who liked to lead from the front. Just two weeks before, in early August, 1944, a bomb landed between his tank and another from I-Company. Both tanks were immobilized, but luckily, War Daddy's crew were okay. However, the other tank's team weren't so lucky. After instructing his men to fall back to safety, Lafayette ran over to an injured tanker and despite being under intense enemy fire, carried him all the way back to safety. He had to be ordered by an officer not to go back out again. Paul's close-knit team were an impressive unit, having already racked up quite a kill list as they moved through Normandy. They had taken out hundreds of German soldiers. Several tanks, including a feared Panther, multiple self-propelled artillery pieces, anti-aircraft guns, and even a train. Now, on the 29th of August, the convoy continued to spearhead through the North French countryside. And this time, Paul was not running point much to the relief of his crew. Although War Daddy loved leading the column, sitting on top of the tank, it meant his men had to drive with their hatches buttoned up. A pretty headish experience in the heat of the summer. Despite the danger, the only other crew member who liked to drive with his lid open was Baby, who was terrified of becoming stuck in a burning tank after a previous incident which saw his lid get sealed shut by an enemy round.
2: If a Sherman was hit, it would often immediately catch fire. The British took to nicknaming them Ronsons as they would light up on the first hit, just like a cigarette lighter of the same name that was commonly used in World War II. The average life expectancy of a tanker in a Sherman tank during the Normandy campaign was about six weeks. And if that tank got hit, trust me, Everybody wanted out of that tank as fast as possible to increase their chances of survival.
1: The column ground to a halt, and Paul got on the radio to find out what the trouble was. Ahead, apparently, three Panzer Five tanks, known as Panthers, had been spotted, and the lead US tanks with 75 mil guns felt they couldn't engage. The enemy's armor was too thick. They needed a tank destroyer with its more powerful 76mm cannon to take them out. Paul volunteered to move forward, and the senior officer, Lieutenant Colonel Richardson, who had become aware of Paul's tank killing reputation, was only too glad to let him have a go. Much to the crew's dismay, it looked like they were going to run point after all. Hello, I
0: hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, Feature little known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit. And if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com,
1: the home of military heroes. In the mood arrived at the front of the column and then circled round wide from where they suspected the Panthers were located. Baby gunned the tank to the top of a nearby hill, and Paul, standing up in the turret, spotted the three Panzer Fives lying in wait below.
2: Hey, load her up, jailbird. Armor piercing.
1: Said War Daddy over the radio, as Boggs ran in around into the Sherman's gun. Ready. Shouted ground dog. Let her rip came the boss's reply. Depressing the foot trigger, on a fire, and the first round struck home, hitting the panther side-on. -"Keep them coming!" shouted Paul, and Jailbird quickly loaded another round. There was another terrific boom, as in the moods gun discharged a second deadly shell. Another direct hit saw the panzer burst into flames and German troops scrambled out of the tank. The other two Panthers quickly reversed over the hill, clearly worried that they were no match for this Sherman's commander. But War Daddy wasn't about to give up yet. Radioing back to command, he set off in pursuit, ready for a two-on-one battle to the death with the superior enemy Panthers.
2: Shermans came in two variants one with a troop supporting 75mm gun which could fire high explosive rounds, and a tank destroying variant which had the 76mm gun which could fire armor piercing rounds. The 76 with the higher velocity gun was War Daddy's choice of tank. So, depending on what model of tank came into contact with each other, the encounter would then determine its tactics. Germans could spot the shorter barreled 75 mm tanks and would like to take them on, feeling empowered in their heavily armored machines. Taking on a 76 mm, however, usually meant a duel to the death.
1: While in the mood pushed on ahead with the column moving up behind to support, bravely crossing a bridge alone, the tank trundled forward, coming to the edge of a town. Cautiously, the Sherman manoeuvred its way down the winding streets. Paul told his men to stay alert. Troops with anti-tank guns could be hiding any doorway or window, and the enemy Panthers could be concealed down the side roads. Rounding a corner, War Daddy was right. There were Germans but in the mood had advanced so rapidly that the enemy was taken completely by surprise. In the town square sat four ammunition trucks, each in the process of being loaded up, the soldiers desperate to get away. Groundhog didn't wait to be ordered and immediately opened fire. The explosions were titanic the German soldiers scattering everywhere. Just outside the town, the rest of the US column heard the terrific bang and the ensuing gunfire, and watched as a plume of smoke rose up in a fiery mushroom cloud. The commander, Lieutenant Colonel Richardson, quickly got on the radio, asking whether in the mood was okay. His first thought was that the Sherman must have been hit The Texan drawled back. All okay here, boss. Just popping up cheering. There was still no sign of the retreating tanks, however. And as the day neared its end, the Colonel ordered the unit to coil up, ready to bivouac near the town of Cerny.
2: German tanks in the Second World War were the best of their kind. They had more powerful cannons and their armor was way thicker. They could outgun the Shermans in a one-to-one duel. In a one-on-one contest between a Panther and a Sherman, I'd have to put my money on the Panther. It's been known that a Panther tank could shoot clean through the side of a Sherman all the way out the other side. If you're in a Sherman tank tank tanking on Panthers, you're a very brave individual, and War Daddy was definitely a brave individual.
3: We wanted to ensure that the tank battles in Fury were the most realistic that has ever been seen. So that meant understanding tactics of the era. Tank armor is thickest at its front and gets progressively weaker around its sides. Tiger tanks had over 100 millimeters of armor head on, but the sides were reduced to 80 millimeters and even less at the back. When the tank battle happened in Fury, you've seen that War Daddy wanted to get round the back of the Tiger tank to get the shot in the weakest piece of armor, which was there. This is based on fact that we researched, and David took it to great lengths to get that tank battle correct. When we showed it to original veterans, they were overwhelmed. And I I was was in Washington, D.C. at the premiere with a whole lot of World War II veterans. And each one of them at the end of the movie came up to us and said, thank you so much. That was the way it was. I can't believe that I'm seeing this in film right now. So that made us feel very good.
1: As darkness fell, Hall's tank crested a hill overlooking the settlement. Suddenly, there was a terrific clang, like the gong of a giant bell. In the mood had been hit, luckily not seriously. The men were dazed and in shock. It was one of the few times they had ever been taken by surprise and they weren't used to not being in control. Then another loud clang as a second shell ricocheted off the back of the tank. War Daddy desperately searched the horizon. A third hit and they were done for. Holler shouted, I have a target. Paul told him, Well hit it then. The tank's gun flashed, and the enemy Panther hiding in one of the town streets was struck head on. The German crew leapt out of the vehicle, but it didn't seem to be on fire. Paul thought they would soon return to their tank when they thought the coast was clear. So he radioed for permission to go into the town and finish it off. Permission to move forward. Receiving an affirmative, Baby gunned in the move forward. As the Sherman approached the Panther, Groundhog let off another round and the German tank exploded. Just at that moment, a shell whistled past their tank. It was a trap. Another panther was lying in wait for the Sherman, hidden round a corner. Turning the Sherman, which took what seemed like an interminable age, Paul told Honour to fire again. Fire again! Fire at what? Groundhog shouted back. It was now pitch black outside and none of them could see anything. Aim at the flashes! Instructed Paul. The panther let off another shot, but again missed. Their first two shots had hit nothing but had betrayed their position. Groundhog aimed directly at where he thought the Panther was and fired. The round struck home, luckily hitting just under the turret, which immediately ignited its ammunition store. They had just clocked up their third tank kill in 24 hours.
2: There was no night vision equipment in World War II until the very end of the war when the Germans started experimenting with infrared. Prior to that time, in any kind of night combat, you basically had to fire back at the muzzle flashes from the enemy. If you're retreating and you're being chased at night, don't fire back at them because that tells them where you are. Sometimes they'll fire at you to make you fire at them so they can find you. We call it doing recon by fire. So if we're in pursuit of somebody, we have to shoot at them and then they shoot back and then we know where they are. But if they're smart, they'll keep moving and not shoot back.
1: In the mood was back on the road the very next day, leading the spearhead convoy. It was the 30th of August and Paul's rampage wasn't anywhere near over. The German army was in full retreat and he was scouting around trying to find enemy units to take on, despite orders to the contrary. US command wanted the third herd to push on and get into Germany. They had been told not to engage the enemy where possible, as it would slow the advance down. However, Lieutenant Colonel Richardson was happy to give War Daddy a very long leash. It was clear the man loved to fight, and he was doing astonishing work inspiring all the men in the entire column. At exactly 1.18pm, the colonel's radio crackled into life. It was Lieutenant Mangan reporting from the front. Enemy, two clicks north. Paul had encountered light arms fire and was beginning to engage. Richardson was also informed that Allied spotter planes had seen three German battalions in full retreat but they had left defensive units which were being set up in a field outside the village of Nouveau-Posienne. One pilot had specifically seen at least one anti-tank gun being set up amongst the haystacks. The column halted while command worked out what to do next. Standing on the lieutenant's tank, Sergeant Paul asked Manga permission to speak to Richardson directly. Handing him the phone, War Daddy then requested that he should be allowed to move forward and recognize to the field. Once again, Richardson was only too happy to give his permission. The green-battered Sherman trundled slowly forward in the burning sunlight. The men buttoned up. This time, it was a case of when, not if, they were to be engaged. As in the mood, crossed the stream in front of the field, baby gunned the engine to get the tank up the other side. Immediately from behind the haystacks, two panzer grenadiers jumped out, each holding a deadly panzerfaust anti-tank weapon. What's happened, school schoolboy? Shouted War Daddy, and the 30 cow chattered away. Groundhog let rip of the cannon taking out the second German. Popping open the hatch, Paul looked around. Then he spotted it. Cleverly hidden in a haystack further down the field was the anti-tank gun. He pointed its location out to Oller, and soon the German wheeled pack 40 cannon became a mass of twisted metal. Advancing through the field, they saw no more opposition but then something caught Paul's eyes. In the distance, on his left flank, was a huge enemy convoy. Jumping onto the radio, he told Mangan that the field was clear, but that he was engaging an enemy convoy. Before waiting for an answer, or maybe they heard it but ignored it, in the mood, raced ahead, bouncing over the field and smashing through the hedgerow. Jowlbird had already loaded an armoured piercing round, and skidding the tank round, Baby had placed them in the ideal firing position. Send that panther a mail delivery ground on. Snarled war daddy. The mighty 76 mm gun roared once again, and the lead tank of the column exploded, <laughs> bringing the entire German convoy to a halt. The
3: most successful tank commanders had the best drivers who would maneuver their tanks into the best position quickly to deliver that killer shot without exposing their weaker sides. When we filmed Fury, we ensured we had the best drivers we could to ensure all our combat sequences were as authentic as we could make them.
1: For the next hour, Cole and his men raced in the mood up and down bringing death and destruction to the enemy. It was carnage, and by the time the rest of the third herd had caught up, nearly the entire enemy convoy had been destroyed. Captain Olin Brewster, one of Richardson's command officers, opened his hatch and whistled. He would never seen anything like it. His battle report stated that, in the mood, had knocked out four tanks including two Panthers, three anti-tank guns, and 50 unarmored vehicles. 53 Germans had been killed and a further 63 injured, and the remaining soldiers, well over 50 of them, were taken prisoner. For his action that day, Lafayette Paul was recommended the Distinguished Service Cross and his men, the Bronze Star. The crew of In The Mood were exhausted, both physically and emotionally, apart from perhaps War Daddy, who seemed to have a never-ending supply of energy. Over the past few weeks, he had requested time and time again to lead the column, and whilst his men might have grumbled, they wouldn't have had it any other way. The tankers had been the tip of the spear an incredible 21 times
2: tank fighting is extremely stressful. Despite being surrounded by armor, you can feel very exposed. That's why most commanders continually rotated the point tank to give the men a rest. Driving at the front of a column means you're the first person to get fired at, the first person to run into a tank trap, and usually the first person to be killed. It's very demanding. I think that's why it's all the more extraordinary that Poole insisted on continually leading the columns once famously saying, you can't kill the enemy back in the column.
1: They had now battled their way through Belgium and every town they drove through, locals would run out and ply the men with cheese, wine, and flowers. There were some benefits from Riding Point, Paul's crew realized, as Gelbird placed yet another bottle of Claret amongst the shells. However, all the red wine in the world wouldn't make up for the fight they had to endure ahead. They now had reached the Siegfried Line, the defensive anti-tank wall that protected Germany. After several days of hard fighting, the third herd had made it through the first part of the line. But their losses were staggering, with 79 Shermans taken out and nearly 1,000 men killed. Tragically, in a few days' time, In The Mood was about to join their numbers. It was a cool morning of September the 19th and the crew of In The Mood was just waking. Paul had been instructed to go and talk to Lieutenant Colonel Richardson. War Daddy was like a bear with a sore head as he made his way towards his commander. A couple of days before, Gelbird had been sent off to the medic to get his ears and teeth checked. What kind of BS was that, poor thought. He didn't like being without his top loader and he intended to bring it up in the meeting. As he strode into the Colonel's tent, he saluted. Richardson greeted him with a smile. Sir. Good news, he explained. In the Moose exploits had drawn such attention that they were going to send him and the tank back to the US for a war bonds tour. During the Second World War, the American government took loans from members of the public to help deal with the huge financial cost. These loans were called war bonds and to enthuse the public to keep on investing, they would often send combat heroes on nationwide tours. Paul didn't like the thought of being taken away from killing Germans, but now it all seemed to make sense. Perhaps it was no coincidence that Gelberg Boggs had been removed for his medical. After the death of his brother, Charlie, it wouldn't look good for the tour if something happened to the loader. But it wasn't over just yet. Before In The Mood and its crew left for the States, the colonel explained, they were to be involved in one more push towards Arkin. Just to be on the safe side, however, he also was going to place the tanker and his men on the quieter flank. And no, Paul was not allowed to drive point. If War Daddy's move wasn't good before he saw Richardson, ah, damn it. it was certainly terrible now. As the tank trundled forward towards Munsterbush, a western district of Stolberg, schoolboy was now in the place of Jailbird. Not ideal, thought Paul. The original loader of bogs had never misloaded around. The slightest delay could mean the difference between life and death. Schoolboy had a tough act to follow, he thought. The small column they were in ground to a halt. They'd reached a deep-sided ravine in front of a village and War Daddy had jumped out to talk with the other tank commanders who were discussing their options. At that moment, an item company jeep roared up. Inside was in the mood replacement loader, a private called Paul Kenneth King. Reporting for duty. War Daddy instructed him to jump into his tank schoolboy glad to be back in his old position manning the 30 cal next to war daddy lieutenant mangan received word from a scout he'd sent out ahead they'd found a way through the ravine the convoy set off again both paul and his driver baby richards sitting with their hatches open scanning the land around them for enemies there'd been a report of four panther tanks in the vicinity, so they weren't taking any chances.
2: Although tanks can cross nearly any obstacle, the commanders need to assess the time it would take to cross and the physical exposure this puts their tanks in. If there were no enemies around, then a tank could drive directly over the edge of a small ravine and then back up the other side again. The problem with this maneuver is that it expose the lightly armored underbelly of the tank as it rises up over the bank. So you have to be sure you won't be shot at. As a crew chief of a tank, if I run up on an anti-tank ditch that some engineers have built, what I'm gonna do is really stick myself out of the tank, look down in the ditch, and see if it's within the capabilities of my vehicle to cross that. If I think I can cross that, I'm going to cross it. Now the problem is if you come up on a series of anti-tank ditches that you don't think you can negotiate, if it's beyond the capabilities of your vehicle, and you see an easier way to get through. That easier way to get through may be the ambush. That's where they may have an anti-tank gun zeroed in, waiting to funnel you into that area.
1: As the small unit started down the hill to traverse the ravine, events happened quickly. The tank ahead of In The Moon was suddenly hit by an 88 surge. War Daddy looked up and saw a flat 88 gun that had been hidden inside a garage in the town opposite. The big doors have been swung open just seconds before. He shouted to Ola to fire, but inside the tank, the new loader was struggling to get the round in. Paul sensed the delay, and instructed Baby to put the tank in reverse. Hit reverse! At that exact moment, In the mood was hit. An 88 shell passing straight through the turret. War Daddy and Grand were both blown out of the tank. The round having sliced through one of each of their legs. Close opened his hatch like Richard's, ready to jump out if necessary. Schoolboy turned to see if King was okay, but the young private was dead. He'd been hit in the head by the round and instantly killed. Baby gunned the tank back, but then another round slammed into the turret. Without War Daddy to guide him, Richards was driving blind, doing anything to get out of the field of fire. Behind the tank, Ola was still conscious and luckily was able to see the tank racing towards him. Rolling to his side, in the mood roared past him, but the tank wasn't going straight and its left tread slipped over the edge of the gummy. Seemingly in slow motion, the tank rolled into the ravine. It tumbled over, eventually coming to rest upside down at a 45-degree angle. Using the escape hatches, Located in the bottom of the tank, both Richard and Close managed to escape. Meanwhile, at the top of the ravine, Paul tried to stand, but instantly his mangled leg gave way. <gasps> Lieutenant Colonel Richardson leapt from his tank nearby and ran over to Paul, calming him down by administering the shot of morphine. I got you, Paul. Shouting for medics, he tended to the injured tanker as he slipped in and out of consciousness. Eventually, help came, and as they loaded War Daddy onto a stretcher, he looked at the colonel and said, Somebody take care of my tank. It was the end of the war for Lafayette Paul and Willis Oller. Both of them spent years recuperating in various medical institutions back in the States. Initially, doctors tried to save Paul's leg, but in the end, it was too badly damaged and he had it amputated. Fortunately for Ola, he managed to keep his, but he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Despite losing his leg, Paul returned to the army as an instructor and tall all around the US until 1960. He was a revered individual in the armor community and they named a new $55 million training facility after him. In later years, although his health began to fail him, his humor never did. Amusingly, he also called his wheelchair in the mood. He passed away with his wife by his side on the 30th of May, 1991. After the war, Grandoc Honor became a farmer, and when that became too strenuous, he became a policeman. He passed away aged 64 in March, 1979. Del Jalberg Boggs never returned to tank duty. Instead, he transferred into the Air Corps and worked in their headquarters. He never really recovered from the death of his brother in Normandy, and he died aged 60 on October the 27th, 1989. Close and Richards both saw out the war in item company, baby Richards making it all the way to V-Day. Richards continued to drive after the war, but this time it was commercial trucks other than tanks. He died in 1987 in Baltimore, Bert Schoolboy Close became a lawyer after the war, and was also very involved with his local church. The last surviving member of the In the Mood crew died on the thirteenth of February two thousand and nine, aged eighty-three. An article in the Army's Yank magazine, written during the war, summed up what Paul's peers thought of him. In an interview, Lieutenant Colonel Richardson stated. Paul is the tanker of tankers. He can never be replaced
2: in this regiment.
1: Davis puts Lafayette's actions into perspective for us.
2: I think we all owe a great debt to these unsung heroes that served in these Sherman tanks. Being a tanker in World War II took a lot of grit and nerve. To know that you could be hit at any second and roasted alive inside a steel coffin took very special individuals.
1: Owen, too, strongly feels these men need to be remembered. There
3: are a great many individuals that emerged from the Second World War. There is no doubt that Lafayette G. Poole was one of them. Tankers like submariners and bomber crews were some of the great unsung heroes of the war. They worked in very dirty, noisy, cramped conditions. They met death around the corner or they delivered death. They were absolute heroes.
1: A final word from David Willey.
0: Crewmen like Paul showed above all that it's the crew inside the tank that matters more than the tank itself. He won battles time and time again against what, on paper at least, were technically superior enemies. Whilst new weapons will come to defeat armour, I feel that tanks will continue to adapt and evolve and be around on the battlefield for many years to come. What soldier wouldn't want protection, mobility and firepower, the things that a tank brings? Here at the Tank Museum we have the hero tank Fury from the film and of course the Tiger it fought against. These are just two of our over 300 vehicles in the collection. The Tank Museum is on a working military base. This is where the next generation of British tank soldiers are trained. The collection is used to illustrate how these young soldiers' predecessors fought and inspire them in their task. Please do come and visit us at the Tank Museum Bovington in Dorset. It's a great day out for all the family or look at our videos on YouTube.
1: There are very few books that focus solely on the life of Lafayette, but perhaps the best, in my opinion, is Blood and Fury by Stephen L. Moore. A link is in our show notes and on our website, amazingwarstories.com. While you're at our website, please do visit our shop, especially the kids section. You can buy some brilliant model Sherman tanks perfect to build and play with whilst you listen to this podcast. They make excellent Christmas or birthday presents. I know, as I've given my grandchildren some. Remember, everything you spend helps us keep on making content that supports military museums and veterans' charities. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and the music is by Extreme Music.